tell you a story that's intriguing, mysterious, dramatic, and miraculous. The tale of the Shudamite lady. Once upon a time in a land far away, there lived a lady in Shudam. Shudam was a city in the Jezreel Valley and was inhabited mainly by Jewish people from the tribe of Issachar. The Shudamite lady's name is a mystery, but we know that she was prominent and considered by all to be generous, giving, and kind. Elijah, the prophet, often traveled from Samaria to Mount Carmel and had to pass through the town of Shudam. One day as he was passing through the town, the Shudamite woman invited him to stop in for a meal. Obviously, the time spent together was very pleasant for the prophet, the hostess, and her elderly husband. Because of the success of this shared meal, it became Elijah's custom to stop at this home for a meal whenever he was passing through Shudam. A remarkable and a wholesome relationship developed between the Shudamite lady, Elijah, and her husband. Elijah became known as a holy man in the area, and the family welcomed his every visit. They enjoyed his time with them so much that the woman sought to do more for the prophet than just provide a meal. So one day, the wife suggested to her husband that they make a little room up on a roof and that they provide a room for this man. Now, it was not to be an elaborate addition to the home that would require a special pavilion and expensive decorations. It was to be a simple but adequate room with a bed, a table, a lamp, and a chair. She did this out of kindness and because she sensed a need, not out of any selfish motive. And so it happened that the next time Elijah came by to speak and went there to visit, he went to his comfortable and his cozy room and he lay down for a nap. After he was refreshed, he lay on the bed and he just started thinking and rejoicing in the luxury of having this cozy and personal space all to himself. He longed to find some way to express his gratitude to the generous hostess of the house. So he called his servant, Gehiza, tell the Shudamite woman I want to see her. Gehiza called to her and she came to the door of his room. And when she came, Elijah said to his servant, tell her that we appreciate her great kindness and ask what we might do for her in return for her kindness to us. Ask if we might have, if she might have a special request that we might bring to the king or to other high officials. To their surprise and amazement, the lady replied that she had a home among her own people and she felt secure in the country. She felt secure in this community with her family and with her tribe and that she had no needs or desires for special favors from anyone.
Elijah thought that there must be something that they could do for this generous lady. But Behiza, the servant, alert and sensitive, noticed that she had no children, especially no son, and that her husband was elderly. This situation could present a problem. Being childless was a great disappointment to any woman of that culture because it meant that the family's name would not be passed on. And in that culture, it also meant that upon the husband's death, all of the possessions could go to others in the family. It was also a great threat to this young wife's future and that the likelihood that she would face many years as a widow and would have no provider or protection. Children were a widow's only social security in old age. A child would also remove the stigma of barrenness that had plagued the young wife for years. So the young lady was told by Elijah that in about a year's time, she would hold a baby boy in her arms. She was stunned by the amazing statement, and she responded, Don't make promises to me that you cannot keep and mislead your servant. Her response revealed the depth of her desire for a son and her fear of disappointment more than it showed a lack of respect or confidence in the prophet's words. The lady who had so generously provided material things like food and lodging for the prophet of God was about to be blessed by the God of the prophet, blessed beyond material blessings with the gift of a son. And so, just as Elijah had told her, about a year later, she gave birth to a beautiful and perfect baby boy. Her husband marveled and was delighted with this blessing. The people of the town were shocked and amazed. The trustworthiness of Elijah's word was confirmed, and the birth of this child was shown to be the result of God's gracious intervention on the Shudamite lady's behalf. One day when her child was older, he went out to visit his father, who was working with the reapers, working in the fields in the heat of the day. The little boy complained about a headache and soon was moaning in pain. The father was clueless and felt helpless of what to do with the child, and so he said to his servants, carry him home to his mother. In the privacy of her room, the mother nursed and coddled her dear son on her lap. Around noon, the promised child died apparently from a sunstroke. The little boy, given his evidence of God's grace and reliability, was suddenly taken from the woman in a severe test of her faith. Her immediate actions demonstrated the strength of her faith. She felt that it would be better for her husband to not know of their son's death, and she had a plan. 
The mother took the dead child and she lay him on the bed of the man of God. She concealed the child's death from the rest of the household while she went to seek the prophet who had predicted the birth of this miracle child. Not one peevish, murmuring word came from her lips. She had faith that the God who had given this blessed child could also restore the child. She did not prepare her child for burial, which was the custom in her country and her family. By faith, she prepared for the resurrection of the boy and not his burial. No doubt this mother had heard of how the great prophet Elijah had raised the widow's son in Zarephath, raised him to life, and she believed that Elisha, who had been predicted this gift of God, could obtain the beloved child's restoration to life. So she went off in great haste to the holy man of God. And as she approached Mount Carmel, Elijah saw her in the distance and said to his servant, Look, the lady from Shudim is coming. Run and meet her and ask her what the trouble is. Inquire if her husband's all right and if her child is well. All is well, she lied to Gehazi, because she did not want the prophet to hear the news of the son's death from his servant, but she wanted him to hear it from her own lips. When she reached Elijah, she fell, threw herself at his feet, and held tightly to him. Grasping his feet showed her desperate dependence on this prayerful man's power. Her actions also displayed her humility and her respect for Elijah. Elijah directed his servant, after he had heard the news, he directed his servant to go as quickly as possible to the dead child and to lay his staff upon the child's faith. Elijah expected God to restore the boy's life when the staff was placed on him. This does not assume that Elijah attributed magical power to the staff, but he viewed it as a representation of his own presence and as a symbol of divine power. The distraught mother was not convinced that this was the way that God would restore her son to life, and she insisted that Elijah accompany her to shoot him. Gehazi the servant went on ahead and laid the staff upon the child's face, but nothing happened. There was no sign of life. He turned to return to meet Elijah, and he told him that the boy had not awakened. When Elijah arrived, the child was indeed dead, lying there upon the prophet's bed. He went in and he shut the door behind him and he prayed to the Lord. Elijah turned to the Lord in earnest prayer. His prayer was clear evidence that the subsequent actions that he took were not means of magical power of restoring life, but were direct instructions from God himself. Elijah lay upon the child, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, and his hands on the child's hands. And gradually, 
the miracle was performed and the child's body began to grow warm. Elijah got up and paced back and forth in the room. Then he went back again and he stretched himself upon the boy. The boy started sneezing seven times he sneezed. Seven times, not more or less, because seven has always been a number that represents the power of God. And after sneezing seven exact times, praise God, the child opened his eyes. Elijah summoned his servant and said, Call the waiting mother. And when she came in, Elijah said, Mother, embrace your child. And the Shudamite lady fell at Elijah's feet and bowed to the ground, and she gratefully acknowledged the special miracle granted to her by God through Elijah. And so our story ends, and oh, ladies, there's nothing like a happy ending to a story. And our story this morning has a very happy ending. And as with all good and true biblical stories, full credit goes to the Lord. Will you pray with me? Loving Father, we know that this passage, this story of Scripture, was not recorded merely for our own enjoyment or our astonishment, but was rather given for our instruction. All these things were written that we might gain insight for living our lives today. Loving Father, do it again. Allow the Holy Spirit to teach through me the timeless truths from this portion of your divine and sacred word. And I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. This is not, it has a ring. Can can you hear it with the ring behind it? It's driving me crazy, I don't know about you. Only God is in the miracle business. Our lesson this morning is encircled, encased, and slathered in miracles. In our questions today, before we even got to the Shudamite woman, we looked at the miracles that occurred with Elijah and Elijah. The miracles that are recorded in 2 Kings chapter 2. The miracle of Elijah going to heaven in a whirlwind, riding on a chariot of fire. The miracle of Elijah parting the waters with the cloak of Elijah and crossing over on dry land. I've always had great sympathy for these two prophets who had such similar names, Elijah and Elisha. I have a twin sister named Mickey, Mickey and Vicky, and we answer to any kind of icky. (laughs) And so I've always assumed that Elijah and Elijah answer to any kind of Eli. But it's my challenge and my joy this morning to try to make this true story of the Shudamite woman relevant and real in our lives today. As we continue in our series of real women and real relationships, 
What do we learn about this woman's relationship with her husband, Elijah, and God? You have been given verse sheets and principle sheets that are all handed out earlier. In her relationship with her husband, the Shudamite woman treated him with great respect. She consulted him on the decision to provide guest quarters for Elijah. She did not just go out and do it and then inform her husband of what she had done. Often, we as women need to show that same respect to our husbands and not just form them of our decisions. How many times have we found as wives that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission? This is not the way she operated. And God honored her in her respectful relationship with her husband. Today, those of us who are married are commanded to respect our husbands. In Ephesians 5.33, it says, Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It would be very naive of me this morning to look out at this audience of lovely women and assume that all of you who are married have good marriages. I'm sure that there's some of you that sit before me this morning that struggle in your marital relationship. Often, often, if you ask God for a miracle... If you ask God for the miracle to allow you to respect your husband and show him that respect, you will be amazed at what God can do and how it can help your marriage. In the Shudamite lady's relationship with Elijah, she noticed that he was a very unusual man. What did the Shudamite woman see in Elijah that caused her to refer to him as a man of God seven times in 29 verses. We all know that when God repeats something, it's to draw our attention to it. Obviously, God did not want us to miss the point that this prophet Elijah was considered a godly man. The lady of Shudam wanted Elijah's influence around her household She went out of her way to ensure that Elijah would be welcomed in her home. She wanted to know his God because of his vibrant relationship with his God. Do people desire to know your God from what they see in your life? Is your faith so strong that others are attracted to the object of your faith. The Shudamite woman was so sensitive to Elijah's needs. How sensitive are you to the needs of those who flow through your life, especially those who are in full-time Christian work? Are you willing to pray and to ask the Lord for ways to serve others, especially those like Elijah, who was in the Lord's service. The Shudamite's relationship with God was evident from her desire to know the man of God. 
She had faith in the God of Elijah, and her faith and relationship grew as God worked in her life, especially in the miracle birth of her son. This woman believed in the goodness of God and looked for a miracle when her son died. She went to extraordinary measures to get to Elijah when her son died. She did not rely on anyone else. The Shudamite lady had a pure, respectful, and wholesome relationships with her husband, Elijah, and God. But the question I asked myself many times as I was working on this passage, what timeless principles and truths can we glean from a woman who lived 800 years before Christ was even born? And in this passage in 2 Kings 4, verses uh, 8 through 37, I found five principles that are written on your sheet. Principles are important, but also what's important is what applications can we apply in our own lives from this woman who lived in a culture and in a country so different from our 21st century lives. Principle number one, the overarching principle of this lesson that permeates the whole passage is the powerful principle that God is in the miracle business. The first miracle, the barren woman, the barren Shudamite woman, with an elderly husband, gave birth to a son. This was a miracle. Second miracle in the passage is the miracle child died and was raised from the dead. And ladies, today, God is still in the miracle business. Jeremiah 32:17 says, "O sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arms. Nothing is too hard for you. God is in the miracle business." Principle number 2, God knew the Shudamite woman longed for a child, and God knows the deepest longings of each of our hearts today. And only he can satisfy those needs. In Psalms 37, verse 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's important to note that Scripture says that God will give you the desires of your heart and not the desires of your flesh. And as we ladies know, often there's a vast difference between the desires of our heart and the desires of our flesh. God knows today the deepest desires of each of our hearts, and he also knows the desires of our flesh. If you are in conflict with the Almighty over what's a desire of your heart and what's a desire of your flesh, ask God to adjust your desires for his purpose and for his will in your life. Does that seem impossible? Remember, God 
is in the miracle business. Principle number three, you can never outgive the Lord. The woman who so generously provided material things for the prophet of God was blessed by the God of the prophet far beyond material blessings. The Shudamite woman must have been the hospitality diva of the village, the real little Martha Stewart of that era. But you know, the Bible commands us to practice hospitality. In Romans 12, 13, it says, Share with God's people in need. Practice hospitality. 1 Timothy 3, 2 and in Titus 1, 8 says, One of the qualifications for an elder is to be hospitable. Our Shudamite girl offered hospitality with her husband's consent and his blessings. I can speak personally about the blessings of hospitality in practicing hospitality. My personal ministry verse is found in 1 Peter verse 4, 9 through 11, where it says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gifts she has received uh, to others to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, she should do it as with the strength God provides, with the words God provides. And if anyone serves, she should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised. I have the spiritual gift of exhortation, and my husband has the spiritual gifts of wisdom and service. Together, we exercise our gifts jointly through hospitality. Ladies, I could write a book on the many wonderful and fascinating guests that we've had at our table over the last 30 years. Bob and I take hospitality seriously, and we're very intentional about hospitality. I always have a list of people that we want to invite to be our guest. I get up quicker in the morning if I know I have guests coming for dinner. Bob's a great cook, and he hosts and a host, and he helps me often to prepare the meal. Sometimes I confess I spend a little more time on the thinking of the table decor than what I'm going to serve, but that's where Bob comes in handy. Our philosophy has always been to treat company like family and to treat our family like company. But, you know, we were challenged when we moved to Texas after having lived in Europe for 23 years as missionaries. In Europe, meals were intended to last for hours and to become the entertainment for the evening. When we moved here, we noticed that most shared meals were in restaurants, not in homes. And most shared meals were just a part of an evening of activity and not the focus of the night. Bob and I were challenged to consider stopping our ministry of hospitality and to be more culturally sensitive in the new culture in which we now lived, or to just keep doing what we've always done and keep inviting guests to our table and practicing our form of hospitality. 
I'm so glad we have continued to do what we've always done. I keep a record. And we've already had several hundred guests at our table here in Fort Worth in the 18 months that we've lived here. And ladies, I can tell you, no one has been blessed as greatly as Bob and I have been through hospitality. As a family, over the years, we have been blessed with thousands of guests in our home. And it gives Bob and I joy today that all four of our daughters love the gift of hospitality as much as we do. Ladies, you cannot outgive the Lord. Bob and I have received far more from our guests than we have ever given them in simple meals. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the Shudamite woman and offer hospitality to one another without grumbling and share with God's people in need. Practice hospitality. By inviting our new Texas friends to our table, Bob and I have surely entertained many angels unaware. Praise God. God is in the miracle business. Principle number four, God can conquer death and produce life. Because as Luke 137 reminds us, nothing is impossible with God. The Shudamite child was dead and had a miracle resurrection. Even when everything seems dead and hopeless, God can conquer death and produce life. Is there something in your life this morning that seems dead? Does your marriage seem dead? Is there a relationship with another family member or a child that seems dead? Are your finances in a dead-end position? Are you struggling with being dead in sin? Can you not forgive yourself for sins that you have committed in the past? In Colossians 2, 13 through 15, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. How many of our sins did Christ forgive? All. He forgave us all. God is not keeping a record of our sins, but often we keep that record ourselves. And we keep playing the record over and over again. You may think you're honoring God with your misery over your past sins, but you're not. You're walking in disbelief, not trusting what God has said he would do. God says he will forgive all of your sins. And remember, he can do this because God is in the miracle business. The last principle for this morning, principle number five, miracles are often the results of much prayer, not magic. Before God raised the Shudamite child from the dead, Elijah had prayed and then he prayed again. 
Elijah's relationship with the Lord was so strong that he turned first to the Lord, expecting a miracle. His prayer is clear evidence of the subsequent actions of lying on the boy was not intended as a miracle means of restoring the life of the child. In James 5.16, it says, The prayers of a righteous man availeth much, and the prayers are effective. I've always loved how the Amplified Bible states this verse. The Amplified Bible says that the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayers of a righteous man or woman make tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. Elijah turned his glaze to the Lord for the miracle of healing the child. We, too, must turn our eyes to the Lord when we're faced with an impossible situation. It's been said that an entire chain reaction begins. It begins with our eyes, and it ultimately affects our heart, our soul, and our minds when we look to the Almighty Lord for our help. In Psalm 123, verse 1, it says, I lift my eyes to you, the one enthroned in heaven. Only God is in the miracle business. My favorite author, besides God, who writes contemporary fiction, is a woman named Jan Karen, and she wrote a series of books called the Midford Series. She has in her office a quote by Hudson Taylor, and this quote says, The three stages in the work of God are impossible, difficult, and done. At what stage is the impossible dead problem in your life. Pray that it will move from impossible to difficult and then just be done. Remember, God is in the miracle business. I began this lesson this morning with the true story of the Shudamite lady, and I want to end it with another true story. A little girl named Tess was desperate, desperately needing a miracle. Tess went to her bedroom and she pulled out the glass jelly jar from the closet and she poured out her money and began to count all of her wealth that was stored in the jelly jar. Three times she counted. She needed to be exact. Carefully, she placed her money back into the jar and twisting the lid, she slipped out the back door and walked several blocks to the neighborhood Rexall drugstore. She waited patiently after she got there for the pharmacist to give her some attention, but he was too busy at the moment talking to another man. Tess twisted her feet to make a scuffing noise. He did not pay attention to her. Tess cleared her throat with the most disgusting sound she could mutter, and still the pharmacist paid no attention. Finally, she took a quarter from the jar, and she began to bang it on the glass counter 
That did it. Got his attention. What do you want, little girl? Asked the pharmacist in an annoyed tone of voice. I'm talking to my brother, the pharmacist said. My brother who's from Chicago, and I haven't seen him in a long time. Well, I want to talk to you about my brother, said Tess in the same annoyed voice. My brother's really sick, and I want to buy a miracle. I beg your pardon, said the pharmacist. My brother's name's Andrew, and he has something growing inside of his head, and my daddy says that only a miracle can save him now. So how much does a miracle cost? With a softening voice, the pharmacist said, Honey, we don't sell miracles here. I'm sorry, but I can't help you. Listen, Tess said, I have the money. If it isn't enough, somehow I'll get some more. Just tell me, how much does a miracle cost? The pharmacist's brother was a well-dressed man, and he stooped down and he asked the little girl, What kind of miracle does your brother need? Tess answered, I don't know. And she replied as the tears were dwelling up in her eyes, I just know that Andrew is very sick. And Mama says we need a miracle because he needs an operation. And my daddy can't pay for it, so I want to use my money. How much do you have? asked the man from Chicago. In a soft voice, Tess answered, one dollar and eleven cents. Well, what a coincidence, said the man. One dollar and eleven cents is the exact price for a miracle for a little brother. He took her jar of money in one hand and he took Tess's hand in the other. And he said, honey, take me to where you live. I want to see your little brother and to meet your family. Let's see if I have the kind of miracle that your brother needs. The well-dressed man was Dr. Carlton Armstrong, a surgeon specializing in neurosurgery. He was able to perform a successful operation and to remove the growth that was in Andrew's head. And it wasn't long before the little fellow was home again and doing well. Tessa's mother and father were happily talking about the chain of events that had led them to this wonderful miracle. That surgery, Tess' mom whispered, that was a real miracle. I wonder how much that surgery would have cost. Tess smiled. She knew exactly how much a miracle cost. One dollar and eleven cents, plus the faith of a little child. Oh, ladies, never forget, our God is in the miracle business. Praise God. Shall we pray? Loving Father, I continue to pray that you take the truths from this lesson that we have learned 
and use them today in our lives. Use them in our lives, O God, I pray, to bring honor and glory to you and to you alone. And I pray this prayer in your name, O Holy Christ. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Vicki. If you are a mom with young children, I have great news. When we take a break from Bible study in December, We Care is still going to be available on Thursday mornings for you for child care. On Thursday, December 4th, 11th, and 18th from 9 to 2.